All right, if you have a Bible, open it up. Go to Matthew chapter 6. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Chris. I'm one of the leaders here. I get the privilege of teaching the Bible. This morning, we're going to get right to work. Before we do that, I just want to put a big plug in. I know it's already been plugged, but about half of you have come in since the big plug. Uh, December 24th, we are doing uh, two Christmas Eve gatherings. Uh, the time's just, a, oh, 4.30 and 6.30, I remembered. At the Langford Legion, okay? 4.30 and 6.30 at the Langford Legion. Uh, we've never done two before, and so we're just saying, hey, invite your friends, invite your family, uh, let's pack it out. If you've got friends and family, go to other churches, and you normally go there with them, say, no, nah, your church is lame, our church is better. Uh, we're going to go to our church's Christmas Eve gathering this year, and let's help us uh, pack out the Langford Legion. Okay, Matthew chapter, I was just joking about the lame church thing. Matthew chapter 6. Sort of. Uh, Matthew chapter 6. No, I was just that was That one was a joke. They were both jokes. Come on. Uh, okay. Uh, Matthew chapter 6. Come on, guys. Focus. Focus. Uh, we are going verse by verse through the gospel of Matthew. And some of you might be like, what? We're not doing an Advent series? Well, actually, every single passage of Scripture is actually an Advent passage. And if you want to see how the Lord's Prayer actually connects to the Advent season, if you go on our blog, we've been blogging each week, whoever's been preaching, myself or Andrew so far, uh, and every single petition, we've actually been connecting it to the Advent uh, reality that we celebrate at the Christmas time. So you can go to the blog, check out how that connects into the Advent season. But we just feel like we got to keep pressing through the Gospel of Matthew. Otherwise, uh, we're not going to get through it before many of us are no longer alive. So we've been going, we've been going through the, well, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew verse by verse, and we find ourselves uh, in Matthew chapter six in this particular part that is very well known uh, by most people, probably all people, uh, as the Lord's Prayer. So the Lord's Prayer is probably one of the most famous passages uh, in the Bible because it has been uh, the, the passage that like we used to say this if you're, you know, my age or older, probably in elementary school, you recited the Lord's Prayer. It got recited or spoken, uh, you know, at public gatherings, like political events, sporting events, all that good stuff. Um, but, but oftentimes we, we don't understand exactly what the Lord's prayer is. And so, uh, we start talking about prayer and we have all these ideas that come into our mind about what prayer is. And for some of us, many of us, maybe, I mean, this is definitely the case for me. Prayer has not always been something that I have appreciated or loved. In fact, even to this day, as much as I recognize that prayer is important, it's vital, it's the artery that, you know, the church kind of depends on. Prayer is like the, the heart muscle of the church, and it's one of those things that needs to be first things. That doesn't necessarily mean it's easy. Like, it's hard work to be a person who prays, right? It's hard work to get up early in the morning. It's hard work to pray. It's hard work to stay focused for more than six seconds because, you know, we're ADHD, and, and we got phones, and things are dinging and pinging and, you know, buzzing, and there's like a million and one reasons why we don't want to pray. For some of you, the prayer, you just think it's lame, you think it's boring, you know, and, and here's what I would say to you, and this goes for me as much as it goes for you. If prayer is boring, if prayer is lame, if prayer seems like one of those things that is just a waste of time, here's what I'm going to say. You're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. And I realize that's not a very Canadian thing to say, right? Canadians are not supposed to say things. You can't tell people they're praying wrong. How can you pray wrong? Right? We're in church. You're supposed to say nice things to people. We're Canadians. We're supposed to be passive-aggressive, not aggressive-aggressive. Right? But, but I'm here to tell you, you're praying wrong. And in fact, the reason that Jesus puts the Lord's Prayer in here is because, indeed, the people were praying wrong. I mean, if you just look, go back, Matthew chapter 6, go back up uh, to verse 5. Jesus, before he gets the Lord's Prayer, is, is talking about prayer. And here's what he says. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in synagogues and on and on. In other words, he looks at the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and he says, here's what's wrong with their prayers. They're praying wrong. So, so Jesus actually identifies that, that there's a wrong way and there's a right way to pray. Now, I want to be like abundantly clear because a lot of times what, what can happen, you know, sometimes I... <laughs> I've been known to, you know, just swing the pendulum out, you know, too far sometimes. And so people will hear me say things and what they'll do is they'll, they'll imbue their own meaning into what I'm saying. They'll apply their own meaning to it. And so what I'm not saying is like, you know, that you can't come to God and, you know, just unload your heart. You can't come and bring all the desires and the, the wants and the needs and the cravings of your heart before him. You can't just be raw and real. I'm not saying that. Okay, and we're going to get to, eventually we're going to get to the verse we're in this morning, and we're going to see that God actually encourages us to come to him. But what I want you to see is that there's a right way and a wrong way to pray. That, that there's a way that, 
that God designed for us to pray, to interact with him that is best for us, that, that actually reorients our hearts around him in a way that when we are just left to our own devices and when we just kind of take our hands off the steering wheel and put it in autopilot, we are going to naturally go in a way that is not going to be beneficial to us, right? That's because we're broken, that's because we're self-centered. And what Jesus wants to do is he wants to reorient us around himself. And so Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 6, if you have your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, there's somewhere on the table, they're a gift to you. If you, you can download the Bible app on your phone, I encourage you to follow along with us. He says this in verse 9, he says, this then is how you should pray. So don't pray like this. Here, I'm telling you how to pray. In Luke's gospel, the disciples come to him and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And then he launches into the Lord's prayer. Then he says this in the second half of verse 9, which Andrew preached on. He said, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In other words, when you come to God with, uh, to pray, don't start with your shopping list. Right? Don't come to him with you know, your, your Christmas list and say, God, I need you to give me all of these things. Come to him and start by orienting your life around him, acknowledging that he is God and you are not. Right? And there's this great, this beautiful reality that happens when we, when we start by acknowledging that God is God and we are not. The reason we have shopping lists, right? The reason that we have anxieties, the reason that we have all this like uh, pent up stuff in our hearts that we have to feel like we have to unload on God is because we actually think that we are running the world, right? We think we are the arbiters of truth in the universe. We, we, we shoulder this load that God never intended us to carry. And so I, I think I said this last week, but one of the best things you can do when you sit down to pray Cover your mouth and just rest in the beautiful, wonderful reality that God is God and you are not. And then he goes on and he says this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, we get this picture then where, where Jesus says, you know, you might think prayer is boring. You might think it's useless, but it's anything but that. In fact, prayer is more like warfare than it is, you know, than, than, than it is a bunch of, you know, old people in the basement of the church who are like knitting and praying. Like that, a lot of times that's what we think of when we think of church prayer meetings. We think of boring, bad coffee, uh, store-bought cookies, and all the old people in the church in the back corner praying. And we would never want to be a part of that because all they're doing is praying for people's sore ankles and their sick cats and their Aunt Irma's livers. And that just seems like a waste of time. And, and that, if, the, if that's what a prayer meeting is like, then it is indeed a waste of time because it's not what Jesus is prescribing here. Because what Jesus is prescribing here is that prayer is more like warfare. That the first job of the, you know, the church fulfilling its mission to make disciples who make disciples is to pray. And we've been confessing this week after week after week that we as a church have not done this well. That the first thing we do when we start to think about mission and disciple making is pull out the whiteboard and trust in our own plans and our own wisdom. And we've been repenting. This whole fall has just been a fall of repentance where we said, no, first things first. We need to pray. The picture we have of prayer here is, is a similar picture that we see in Revelation chapter 8 where, where the prayers of the church, the prayer of God's people, they're like incense that goes up into heaven and then God somehow, and I, and I don't understand how this works. This is a mystery of mysteries, but he takes our prayers and he sends them back down on the earth as thunder and lightning. That he uses them for his plan and his purpose in the world. That the first way that God is going to bring about his kingdom to come and his, think about this, his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven is through the prayer of his people. Beautiful picture. And then Jesus goes on, and this is the verse we are going to unpack this morning. He says in verse, uh, verse 11, he says, give us today our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. And here for the first time we see in the Lord's prayer, we see God instructing us to pray to him about our own concerns. So I want, you, I want you to notice that we're about halfway through, and now for the first time we are being instructed by Jesus to bring our requests and to bring our concerns to God. I mean, again, this should just inform 
something of the way that we pray, whether it's our own personal prayer life, whether it's us as a church, whether it's your community group, your DNA group. This isn't like the first thing. This is the, the middle thing. And this should be of great relief to some of you because honestly, last week, some of you came to me and were, were maybe frustrated, maybe angry, maybe you felt this. I'm assuming many of you felt this. If a couple of you talked, I'm assuming where there's smoke, there's uh, fire. And, and you said, I don't understand. Am I not allowed to talk to God about what I actually want? Well, yes, you are. You are. And I, that's what I said. Come back next week. It'll be okay. We'll, we'll smooth this out. God, God delights in hearing his children's requests. And, and I want you to notice here, right? Every word is pregnant with meaning. Look at, uh, look at what Jesus says here. He says, give us. Give us. There's this inherent reality, and we see this as we take a step back and look at the the whole story of God. There's this inherent reality in the, the nature and essence of who God is that he loves to give his kids gifts. This is said of him time and time again. John uh, James, rather, chapter 1, verse 17, says that, that God is the giver of all good gifts, that every single good and perfect gift comes from our heavenly Father. And so there's this reality that God loves to give his kids good gifts. And, and, and I want you to feel this with me here, that, that God is actually, in, in Christ, God is actually inviting us to come to him with our requests and with our petitions. Now, now think about this for a second. I, I want you to hear the whole verse. Give us today our daily bread. We're, we're going to unpack that word bread as we get towards the end this morning. But what Jesus is inviting us to pray here is about the, the minute details of our life. Right? Bread was like the very staple of a first century person's diet. Like They needed this for their basic means of survival. And so what Jesus is inviting us to do is to come to God and ask him to sustain us, to provide for us. But notice the order in which the requests come. Right? God starts, or Jesus rather, starts by saying, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In other words, he paints this big picture of who God is, the holiness of God, the bigness of God. And then he goes on, you know, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, this is cataclysmic warfare kind of prayer. And then what's the next thing he asks us to pray? For daily bread. So on one hand, we get this picture of a God who is so big and so other, the one who spoke creation into existence, the one who hung the stars in the heavens. And then on the other hand, we have a God who is deeply interested in the smallest details of our lives. Isn't that beautiful? Like, I don't know, I don't know when you sit down to pray if you sit down to pray, when you, maybe you're here and you're like, I don't pray, this is my first time in a church gathering, or I'm figuring this thing out, I don't even know what prayer means, like I'm, I'm just on a journey. I don't know what the picture you have of God is in your mind, but I don't want you to miss the picture that Jesus is trying to portray here for us, that yes, God is holy, yes, God is other, yes, God has this plan to bring his will from heaven to earth, but he also cares about you. Like he cares about the smallest details of your life. Now, now don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, because this is where, and I mean, I don't know what it is about us as Christians, but if you're here and you're new to church, this is your time to amen, okay? We're weird. And all the new people said, amen. All the non-Christians said, amen. Because we take verses like this and we start to like pray for, you know, good parking spots at Walmart. Which, I mean, sometimes is, especially Costco, you know, like that's just the grace of God. That, that, now that's legitimate. That is the grace of God. I pray for good parking spots at Costco for the sake of my family and those around me, not for my own benefit. Because <laughs> I will hurt people. But don't, don't take what Jesus is saying here and then run with it to that place, right? Because 
what he is actually saying here is that, yes, God cares about every little detail of your life, but the first thing that we want to do is take our relationship with God and turn it into making it about us. And that's not what Jesus is saying. Again, I'm going to say this probably 15 times this morning. Yes, come to him. Yes, pour out your heart. Yes, you just unload. He's, his shoulders are big enough to handle whatever cares you have in your life. But do not forget the fact that he is God and you are not. That his will is the one that is to be done on earth, not your will. But I want you to notice something else here because I don't know, again, this is a question that I ask when I start to think about prayer, when I start to think about God. Maybe this is a question you've asked. It's definitely a question I've heard a lot. Okay, so we have this picture here of God. He's big, you know, he's the one who hung the stars in the heaven. He spoke creation into existence. And now he's asking us to pray for our daily bread, to pray for even the most smallest, minute details of our lives. Now here's the question, doesn't he already know? I mean, if you just go a few verses up, verse, uh, verse 8, uh, he, Jesus says this about God. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. So then here's the obvious question that, you know, we, we probably have all asked at some point. Does it even matter if I pray? Like, like why should I bother praying if God already knows exactly what I'm going to ask for. And if, the deter if he's already determined the answer to my prayer, then what is the point of praying? Now, he here's where I, I need to stop us again and remind us of the point of prayer. You see, so often we think the point of prayer is us, but it's not. The point of prayer is God. And herein lies the beauty of God. Is he holy? Is he other than? Yes, does he desire to see his will done on earth as it is in heaven? Yes, but here's the beauty, friends. And listen, this is great. This is great. Does he know what you need and want before you even ask it? Yes, but here, check this out. He wants you to ask it anyway. Why? Because he wants you. He has a deep desire to have relationship with you. And listen, don't confuse what I'm saying here. This isn't because he's needy and self-centered. This is because he's good and he loves you. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this in his commentary on these verses. He says, this surely is the marvelous thing, that God likes us to come to him. The God who is self-existent, the great Jehovah, the God who is not dependent upon anybody who is from eternity to eternity, who exists in himself apart from all. This is the astounding thing, that because we are his children, he likes us to come to him, and he likes to hear us. The God who made the heavens and the earth and orders the stars in their courses, he likes to hear our lisping praises. He likes to hear our petitions. This is because God is love. And that is why, though he knows all about our needs, it gives him great pleasure, if we can so put it, when he sees us coming to him to ask for our daily bread. Isn't he good? He knows what you're going to ask. He knows what you want. He knows what you need. And he doesn't say, I just, uh, I'm busy. You're in the way of the TV. Just get out of here. I'm reading a book. Go downstairs with your brother and sister. No, he's a good father. Who says, come sit on my lap. Whisper in my ear. And he hears. Beautiful. So for us, we need to ask the question, how do we view prayer? How do we come to God in prayer? You see, often, as I've said many times and will continue to say, our view of God when it comes to prayer can be more like a pinata than a father. Right? We come with our 
list. We come with our stick of prayer and we beat him and hope he spits out some candy. And again, we have to be so careful because this idea, this picture of prayer can be, the human heart, prophet Jeremiah says, is deceitful above all things. Right? Don't trust your heart. Your heart lies to you all the time. You're like, man, I can't believe some people pray like that. You pray like that. How do I know? Because I pray like that. And you start to look around, and and this is just pervasive. Like one of the best-selling Christian books of all time. Some of you have it on your shelf. It's called The Prayer of Jabez. Right? This is one of the best. This is an international bestseller. If you have it on your shelf and you have a fireplace, you know what to do. Okay? This book is demonic. It's heretical. And what's it about? It, it, whoever wrote, I can't remember the guy's name, but he took some obscure verse out of First Chronicles about increasing your territory. And he said, if you start to pray this verse, you know, write it on a cue card or a sticky note, put it on your mirror and just start praying, Lord, enlarge my territory. If you say it, if you speak it, God will then have to bless you because that's what he did in First Chronicles. This is, the, this, is, this is exactly the same thing that Rhonda Burns writes in her book, The Secret. Right? This is functionally new age spirituality, the law of attraction, that if you speak something into the universe, you can make it be so. As if God is a pinata up in heaven and all you have to do is say the right words and say them in the right way and say them in the right posture. And if you do that, God will have no other choice but to bless you. You can indebt God to yourself based on your performance as a person. And we think that sounds ridiculous. But yet the prayer of Jabez is the number one selling Christian book of all time. And it's on many of your shelves. And you did it with your small group Bible study at some point. And God's going, I'm the gift. I'm the gift. I want you to have me. I don't want you to have stuff. I want you to have me. And if we're not careful, here, here's what can happen. If we treat prayer like this, if we treat God like this, if we treat him as so, some disembodied celestial being who, whose primary existence is to bless us rather than a loving father who delights in knowing us, here's what's going to happen. He will become like a landlord. And the only time you call him is when the faucet is leaking. When you need something from him. Is prayer boring? If it's like that, I promise you it will be. But if we start to shift our perspective on prayer and make it about God and not about us, then all of a sudden we are entering into a friendship with the one who made us and knows us and loves us. Jesus goes on, he says, give us, and then he says this, give us today our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. There's a whole bunch of things we need to unpack here about this verse, the half of a verse, three quarters of a verse, let's be honest here, okay? First thing is this, what is Jesus not saying here? And again, I've said this many times, but I'm just going to keep saying it. I'm going to keep saying it. I'm going to keep saying it. What Jesus is not saying is that we are to come to him with our shopping list. Again, don't misunderstand me. Like he wants to hear from you. He wants you to unload your heart. He wants to, to hear the desires of your heart. He wants you to be real and raw and honest with him. We have an entire book called the Book of Psalms, which is all about God's people just laying out their honest, real feelings with God. He's good with that. But it's, what I'm talking about is something deeper than just what we pray. I'm talking about the, the disposition of the heart when we pray. See, you can actually unload the honest real feelings of the heart when you see God as a father and not as a landlord. So what Jesus is not saying here is come to God with your shopping list. But again, don't miss what he's saying. Give us today our daily bread. And what Jesus here is doing is drawing back on a story from the history of the people of God. If you go back to the book of Exodus, we won't turn there this morning, but in Exodus chapter 16, there's this story where God's people have been delivered from the nation of Egypt. The nation of Israel has been delivered from the nation of Egypt. They've, they've come through the Red Sea. They've been delivered from slavery. God has produced freedom for them. He's, he's brought them into this place where they are free from the tyranny of the Egyptian people. And he brings them out into the wilderness. And they're in the wilderness for some time. 
And they, there's needs. They have needs. They need shelter. And one of the big needs that they have is for food. In Exodus chapter 16, God provides food for them. And he provides food for them in the form of what is called manna. The, the Hebrew word for manna literally translated is, what is this? And they didn't really know what it was. It was this flaky substance, a bread-like substance. And the way that God would provide for his people is that each and every day he would bring manna to them from the sky. It would literally come from the sky. They would collect manna. The instruction for them was to collect enough for the day. If they collected more than they needed for the day, it would spoil and go bad. And so every single day, God would provide manna for them. And every single day, everything that they needed for that day would be provided. Anything excess or extra that they had would spoil. And day in and day out, God would provide for them and they would be fed. They would be full. They would have everything that they needed. Now, an interesting question for us to ask is, why did God do it this way? Why did he provide manna for the day? I mean, if you're here and you're like all about efficiency, you're a type A person, you're thinking this isn't the most efficient way to get things done. He could have done a week. That would have made some sense. He could have done this quarterly. He could have done this once a year. But God chose to do it every single day. Why? Because he wanted them to have a daily reminder of their dependency on him for survival. Because here's what can happen. If we have an abundance, we immediately forget that God is the one who provides for us. We are a forgetful people. We regularly forget in the goodness and grace of God. And so God's desire for his people is that every single day they would be reminded that they need him. This is what St. Augustine calls the problem of pleasure. Many of us have heard of the problem of pain. The problem of pain is how can there be a good God if there's evil and suffering in the world? That's a good question, and we're not going to answer it. Uh, we're not going to answer it today. But St. Augustine came back on the problem of pain, and he said, well, what about the problem of pleasure? You see, when I look at pain, I actually don't see it as a problem. What I, what I, what I see is in people's lives, when pain and hardship comes, the first thing they do is turn and run to God. This is what C.S. Lewis said, right? He says that pain is God's megaphone that he uses to arouse a deaf and dying world. St. Augustine said, I think the real problem is pleasure. The real problem is wealth. The real problem is security, or at least the appearance of security. Because what I see is that when people have enough, when they have plenty, when they have money, when they have you know, enough square footage and enough zeros in the bank, that here's what happens. They become self-reliant and they forget that they actually need God. They, they, they tell themselves a lie, I've got this. They forget. It leads to this place where, where you don't think you actually need the grace of God anymore. And so what Augustine is, is, is positing here is that the real problem isn't pain. The real problem is pleasure. And I think he has a good point. This is something that we see taught time and time and time again in the scriptures. I mean, Jesus, if you start to just unpack, we're going to get to some of these texts in the gospel of Matthew as we go through them. But some of the things Jesus said, some of his harshest critiques, his harshest condemnations and admonitions were reserved for who? Wealthy people, specifically wealthy religious people. You know, he, he says things, and you've heard these verses many times if you've been around West Village for any length of time, but he says things like, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. If you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to Luke chapter, uh, Luke chapter 12. Listen to this parable that Jesus speaks here. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, being Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or even an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. In other words, the world isn't all about what you can get. Uh, verse 16, and then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store all of my crops. 
Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. I'm going to take life easy. I'm going to eat. I'm going to drink. I'm going to be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Verse 21, Jesus says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying the same thing that Augustine is saying. He's saying the same thing that God was saying in the book of Exodus, that there is an inherent danger in being wealthy. There's an inherent danger in being wealthy because here's what it can do. It can lead to the place of spiritual apathy where you no longer need God. And so Jesus' invitation is for us to pray, God, today, give me enough bread to survive. And there's a warning laced in this petition for us, especially those of us in here who are wealthy. Those of us who have enough bread to not just get through today, but to get through tomorrow. We run the risk of thinking that we don't need God. I mean, you just look around the church in the West right now. It is on the decline, not the incline. We're seeing more and more people decide they don't need God. The church is functionally, it's anemic. It has very little influence in the culture. Why? Wealth. I mean, I, and I love you. You know that, right? We know that. Right? This is what we call the compliment sandwich. You say something nice before you say something mean, and then you say something nice at the end again. You learn this in coaching. I love you. So what I'm about to say isn't awesome. But I mean, trying to get us together to be on mission and get us together to do disciple making, I mean, it is, I mean, we have to set the bar so low. Like, low. Just to get participation. Like the thought of having a weekly meal together is like overwhelming for some of us. Why? Because we don't need it. Not just the meal, we don't need the community. Why? Because we're good. We've got this. Forget about Acts 2, buying and selling and giving to anyone who had in need. Like it's not even on our radar. Last night before I went to bed, never a good thing to do the night before you have to preach a sermon on wealth, I read the blog post of the Christians in China who are being put in prison for their faith. You know, for them, it's not a struggle to figure out why they need to be in community. You don't have to convince them. They just get it because they need it. It's like, it's like we couldn't live without this. We couldn't live without the people of God. We couldn't live without doing life together. We couldn't live without being deeply embedded inside of a community of faith filled with our brothers and sisters. For many of us, though, I mean, I love you, I love you, I love you. Being deeply embedded within a community of faith with my brothers and sisters it's not daily bread. It actually gets in the way of what I really want to be doing, which is eating and drinking and being merry. And Jesus is saying, like, be careful. Be careful. If you're here and you're wealthy, be careful. Proverbs chapter 30 the writer of Proverbs says this. He says, verse 7, Two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. And listen to this. I wonder if we've ever prayed this. <laughs> Give me neither poverty nor riches. 
Has anyone ever prayed, God, don't make me rich, but give me only my daily bread? Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who's the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Let me ask us a question, church. It's a good question. We need to wrestle with this, but why do we feel more secure when the bank account is full? I think the answer is obvious, but we believe we have power and control over our future. And we forget that the fact that we are taking a breath right now is only because God permits it to be so. Before I move on, I want to just kind of address a bit of an elephant in the room. Are you saying then, Chris, that it is wrong to be rich? It is wrong to be wealthy. Here's my answer to that. No. But it sure is dangerous. It's very dangerous. And I think there's something else here that Jesus has for us that we miss out on when we don't have to trust him for our daily bread. Because here's what Jesus is saying. That God has the ability to provide for each and every one of us what we need every single day. And And listen, lean in here. This is good stuff. And when you don't need God to provide for you every single day, you don't get to experience the provisions of God for you every single day. You're actually robbing yourself of the joy of experiencing the provisions and the mercy of God. John Piper says this in his book, a Godward life. He says God's mercies are new each morning because each day has enough mercy in it only for that day. This is why we tend to despair when we think that we have to bear tomorrow's load on today's resources. God wants us to know that we won't. The manna in the wilderness was given one day at a time. There was no storing up. That is the way we must depend on God's mercy. You do not receive today the strength to bear tomorrow's burdens. You are given mercies today for today's trouble. Tomorrow's mercies will be new. And so so here's what God's saying. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. God has enough to give you what you need tomorrow. Like if you were to go, like seriously, test him on this. If you were today to go to cash out everything, and I don't know, let's just say drop it in the offering at West Village, hypothetically, okay? Tomorrow, he has enough for you. He could provide for you. You would actually eat tomorrow if you gave it all up today. And not only would you eat, you would worship like you've never worshiped before. Because your God provided for you like he's never provided for you before. And my fear for us, not all of us, but some of us, is we're actually missing out on the mercies of God because he delights in providing for his kids their daily bread, but you don't need his bread. You don't need his mercies because you're responsible. You saved up. So so let me just quickly, again, before I move on, I, I got more to say. I think, (laughs) just looking at the clock. Before we move on, if you are here and you're not rich, and there's lots of people here that are not rich, at least not by Western standards. Can I just say to you, enjoy that. That sounds weird, right? Like nobody ever says, enjoy being poor. But I would contend that you might be the most advantaged person in the room if you enjoy the mercies of God 
and the provisions of God. If when you open your fridge and you see that it's, you know, you're not sure. There's, there's more month than paycheck. There's more days than food. There's more kids than bedrooms. And you're like, I don't know how this is going to work. And if, you're just, if that just tr- causes you to get bitter, like you come here and you see what people have and you look at their cars and you come in their homes, you're like, oh, why do you get this and I get this? And you just get bitter, then you're, you're not going to feast on the mercies of God, right? You're, you're just like the person who longs to be rich. It's the same thing. But if you would just go, this is amazing. Every single day I get to experience the provision of God for my life. I get to feast on the bread of the mercies of God every single day. What a gift he's given to you. As long as you worship the giver and not his gifts. And if you're here and you're wealthy, you're not broke, you're balling, you've got this. You've got money in the bank, you've got six months of expenses saved up. You paid down the mortgage bi-weekly quick and hard because you didn't want any of those nasty interest payments and you followed Dave Ramsey who, whatever, that's another sermon for another day. You did it all, right? You did it all. You've got it. You're good. You're good. You've done it the right way and now you are enjoying the fruits of your labor of doing it the right way. And when you look at the people who have less, you're like, man, if you would just do it the way I would do it, your life would be better. You could have your best life right now if you would just do it my way. Just slid a little Joel Osteen joke in there. I mean, you didn't even notice. Here's my encouragement to you. Be very careful. Be very careful. It is God who made you rich. It is God who has blessed you. It's not your hard work. It's not your responsibility. It's not your spreadsheets. It's not your bi-weekly rapid payments. It's the hand of God. And you own nothing and he owns everything. And he gave it to you to steward for his glory. So scratch a check. Give it away. And use it for the sake of his mission. And put yourself in a position where you get to experience daily the mercies of God. Why does God call us to pray for our daily bread? Because he wants us to depend on him every single day. Okay, I'm going to wind this down. I'm going to invite the band to come up. At the end of this petition, Jesus says something here. He uses a specific word. He says, God, give us today our daily bread. And I just want you to Notice this about everything that Jesus says and really the entire Bible. It's very specific, right? 2 Timothy 3 says that the Bible, the Word of God, is God-breathed, right? He breathes it. Every single word of it came from his mouth to human authors onto paper for us. And every single word is pregnant with importance for us. And so Jesus says, give us today our daily Going to put Corvette in there. He can put any, give us today our daily bread. And when you hear that word bread, every single time you hear that word bread, you need to understand that throughout the story of God, bread is so significant. It's often, not always, but often a metaphor that God is using to describe his provisions. Not just, yes, bread was very much the, the main staple of the people. And so so Jesus is saying, come to God, pray for for your provisions, pray for your survival, for sure. But he's saying something else here, that, that just like the story in Exodus chapter 16, where God provided manna for the people, there was something bigger that was picture for them of his provision, that his provision wasn't just for their stomach, it was for them as a people. That if you go back to the, the beginning of the nation of Israel, that God made a covenant with a man named Abraham that, that he would be their God and they would be his people and that through Abraham, the whole world would be blessed. That Abraham was going to be blessed to be a blessing. That through the nation of Israel, God was going to bring about this idea that we call gospel saturation. That everybody was going to know about the fame and deeds of God. That everybody was going to see the goodness and grace of God. And that the reason that God sustained the people of Israel in the wilderness was his plan and for his purpose and for his glory. There was a spiritual reality that was happening. 
It was through the nation of Israel that God was going to bring about uh, the person and work of Jesus. You go back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and God creates Adam and Eve, and he creates them with a need, a daily need to eat. He didn't have to make them that way, but he made them that way. Why? So that they would be dependent on him. They would always have this constant reminder of their need for him, for their sustainability. They walked with God in the garden every single day. Why? Because they needed him, not just to sustain their stomachs, but to sustain their souls, that God didn't want to just be the the God over their stomach, but he actually wanted to be the God of their souls. He wanted them to know him and be like him. You go to Genesis chapter three, the sin of Adam and Eve, it wasn't just eating an apple. It wasn't just eating fruit. It was that they went somewhere besides God for their sustenance. They said, God, what you have is not enough. I need something else. I'm going to look outside of the daily bread that you have been providing for me to go to somewhere else to meet my needs and brokenness enters in. And so when we're talking about praying for our daily bread. We're not just talking about our food. We're talking about our very souls. If you go to John, uh, John chapter six, Jesus tells this story in John chapter six, and it feeds the 5,000. He says this in verse six. There's a, I'm going to read a bunch of verses here, but picking up in verse 25, he says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, this was the people who had seen him feed the 5,000. They asked him, Rabbi, When did you get here? And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you were looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And when they asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one who he sent. In other words, Jesus is saying, I myself am God. Do you want to know God? Then you need to know me. Because they saw him feed the 5,000. They wanted more of what he was offering. But you're going to see here in just a second that Jesus is actually questioning their motives. They wanted him to perform, perform more signs and more miracles. And Jesus is saying, you don't need signs and miracles. You need me. You don't need more zeros in the bank account or square footage in your home. You need me. You don't need more food in the fridge to sustain your stomach. You need me to sustain your soul. So they asked him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This isn't about your stomachs. This is about your souls. This isn't about just sustaining your life, but sustaining your eternal life. This isn't about just getting what you want, but getting what you need. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Listen to what Jesus says. He declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Church, let me ask us, what are we dependent on? What do we need? Jesus is saying, you might have everything you need, and if you have everything that you need, then guess what? Your hands might actually be too full to come to God to pray for daily bread. You're going to miss out on me. And his invitation is to come to him. So empty your hands, friends. Empty your hands. Oh, empty your hands. That there might actually be room for God. 
Is it wrong to be wealthy? Is it wrong to have zeros? Is it wrong to be successful? No. But it's dangerous. It's dangerous. Jesus says, I want to be the one who satisfies you. Will you let me? Will you let me? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we humble ourselves. Come before you. We acknowledge the ways in which we have desperately tried to be our own gods. We don't want to be dependent on anyone else. We're fiercely, fiercely individualistic. God, in this moment, make us so keenly aware of how foolish that sounds. That our next breath cannot be breathed but by your grace. That everything we have worked and labored and strived for is ultimately in vain. Lord, empty our hands of the things that get in the way of recognizing our deep need for you. And in this moment, whether it's for the first time or the hundredth time, show us how feeble we are how foolish we are, and how good you are. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, Amen.